record now? Record. Okay. So it's, it's a little bit outtake and it's a little bit promo. Okay. Okay. So that's where like you just say, hi, this is Heather Dominic from businessmiracles.com and you are listening to Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Veer. Listen up or get ready for miracles or whatever you want to say. Something okay. like that. But you know, with lots of excitement, <laughs> not like me. <laughs> Got it. So wait, I just make, need to make sure I've got the, okay. you're listening to, is it Jeff or Jeffrey? Jeff. Jeff. So you're listening to Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Veer podcast. You don't have to have podcast. No. Okay. So just listening to Vroom Vroom Veer. Right. And let's get going. Something along Something those like lines. that. Yes. Got it. Get ready for a miracle. Whatever you you can say, whatever you like. Giraffes, okay. spoon, <laughs> be silly. <laughs> Okay, whenever you're ready, go for it. Okay. Hey there, this is Heather Dominic with businessmiracles.com, and you're listening to Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Veer, and here we go. And here we go. Thank you very much. I'm going to hit stop on the recorder, and I'll be right back. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Stephanie Reinold. Thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer and welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're having fun already. We're talking about Scooby-Doo. We're screwing around. It's it's a blast. Scooby-Doo tends to bring that out of you, I guess. Yeah, there you go. It's Friday and I'm ready to have beer and pizza later. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. So you are at not, let me make sure I get this right, notthetypicalmom.com. I like saying that mom.com, right? Uh Not the typical mom.com. Wow. You got a rhyme at the end of your URL. That's amazing. Okay. So talk a little bit about what's going on at not the typical mom.com. I want to say it more. Yeah. So not the typical mom is a lifestyle brand and I teach high achieving moms how to escape the stereotypes and find their hearts and embrace their real authentic selves so they can kill it in life, love and business. And it was sort of birthed out of my own frustrations, both with the mom community world, as well as just frustrations with online business and how they cater to women and moms. And I wanted a space that was different because what I saw is there's all these like stereotypical groups, you know, you have to do this this way and do this that way. And even to do online business, there's like sort of the fraternity of online business out there. Fraternity. Uh Uh-oh. You don't want to be there. <laughs> uh, well, I call it like the four hour work week fraternity. It's like if sure. you don't do things identical to how, you know, mm. the big dogs teach it, then yeah. you're somehow wrong. You're icky. And right. yeah, and I see that same kind of culture in motherhood. Like if you don't do wow. things in the right way as a mom or as a woman, the right. then you're wrong. You have to air yeah. quote the right way, right? <laughs> Quote unquote. Exactly. Yeah. No, I and get so that. I, I, just, I ran into the same wall. So I, I'm right there with you. Yeah. So like escaping, like an, So it took me a while, a few years in the online business space to even figure out that this was a problem because I just 
You just I thought just it was my, you. I just thought right? it was my exactly. Yeah. I just thought it was me. Like I was like, all right, this list building thing, it's not working for me. All right, this right. it's not working for me. Right. You know, right. you keep pivoting, you keep pivoting, and you're like, why am I not making any sales? Like I'm a smart person. Like I'm a freaking doctor. Like I like <laughs> so I have like a wealth of information. What am I missing? Here. And right. I, right. Exactly. I'm like, yeah. just like, just tell me what to do. And then mm. I realized that oh wait, that's the problem. They're like, not gonna tell you what to do. They're not gonna tell you what to do. And well, they'll tell you what to do, it's just not gonna work exactly. for you. Totally. totally. And that's the problem. That's entirely the problem that I realized. Wow. It was, wow. okay. We are on I, exactly the same page. I believe it's 365, yeah. I think, is the page number. Wow. <laughs> sure, it's not 412. Yes, I think it is. You're right. I think it's 412. My bad. <laughs> Thanks for playing along. Okay. So you've got a bit of a, a story, right? Where how yeah. you figured this all out and it has something to do with your postpartum depression, which is more common than most people think, right? It hits people a little differently, right? Different Mm -hmm. moms experience it, you know, harder, softer. Um, but it's almost universal that you get a little bit right. And then talk a little bit about your story and what you figured out from that. Yeah. So I don't know how far you want me to go back. If you all want like the way from your story, <laughs> all so the way, I, I all the think, way. all right, but so, you can do it in chunks. I mean, if it, if it's cool. a multi-chapter story, that's fine, you know, but what we want to yeah. do is we want, we want to see through your eyes and be there, like go into storytell mode. Yeah. So I have a pretty traditional vroom vroom story. So I always wanted to be a doctor, grew up, I was, I was smart. I did well in school. So of course your parents encourage you to be a doctor, right? Cause that's, you know, the American dream. That's what you do. Um, (laughs) Exactly. That's what you do. So I went to college, I was pre-med, I was on scholarship, I was doing well. And then I didn't get accepted to medical school. And that was, <laughs> exactly. Um, wow. It was, yeah. And it's funny though, because I think, you know, you talk about this before where you kind of can see the viewer before it happens a little bit. And yes. I had already sort of questioned. So I was really so involved. That, that I'd question had, was kind of like rolling around somewhere inside of you already. You were feeling sure, it coming. I mean, I think anyone can relate to, right? Like mm. if any delayed gratification kind of venture, there's always going to be some self-doubt. Like, always. I mean, heck, I still, I yes. still doubt myself, you know, and I'm right. now like a full-fledged doctor, but, you know, so probably before then though, you know, I had already started a business and my dad was an entrepreneur growing up. So I, I sort of had this business entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit. And I, one of my favorite classes in undergrad still was like healthcare economics. So here I am, didn't get accepted to med school, totally devastated because everyone knew, I mean, I was so outspoken about it. So it was like my pride was hurt. Like, you know, I had to go back and live with my parents, like, which was entirely embarrassing. And just right. what am I going to do with my life? Like, cause uh, what do you do with a biology? Definitely degree? in and, an UGG situation. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I had a biology degree. It's like, what the heck do you do with that? Mm. Like nothing. You do nothing. Right. Right. Um, unless you want to teach or something. Yeah. Which I didn't want to do or go to other grad school. But I was Mm. like, if it's not med school, like why am I wasting my time? So whatever. A lot of thoughts went through my mind. I ended up getting a pretty, just really for the time of my life, it was like the best amazing job opportunity that I could have even had given to me on a silver and prouder. And they were specifically actually looking for people that wanted to go to medical school because, so it was a project management position for the fundraising arm of Baylor healthcare system in Dallas, Texas. Interesting. So I was doing fundraising for the hospital. I was doing nonprofit, like, you know, administrative side. And 
I actually really loved it. Like that was kind of the crazy thing. It's like, so they hired me and it was sort of part of the job that I was applying to medical school. Cause it was only for a one year term and they want, cause part of my job was doing like research and I was working with doctors doing interviews. And I mean, it was just, it was all around like a really cool opportunity. You know, I worked with very wealthy people in Dallas and I learned really firsthand what it takes to like, please wealthy people and how to get their money. Mm. Wow. And all, yeah, all that stuff. So, and I so realized that kind of like reframes the whole, I didn't get into med school thing in a new light. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yes. Except that the whole plan, I mean, I told my parents, I'm just going to live here a year until I go to medical school next year. And I told my job. And so that was the plan. And so I sort of kind of made a deal with myself, deal with God, whoever, you know, all right, if I get accepted to medical school this year, it's a sign. If I don't, it's a sign, you know, whatever. So I got okay. accepted. Oh, you got accepted. And okay. I did. I did get accepted that next year. And so, you know, my job was over. I was, and I was excited. It was really great. I mean, it was amazing. Like I felt. And now the doubt is gone, right? Yeah. And so the doubt. Oh God. Was it more of a relief kind of feeling or was it like a yes? Uh, or a little bit of both. both. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just. (laughs) The relief is just because it's like, okay, I've, I've invested all of this like me capital in this thing. Totally. Right. Totally. <laughs> and it's, it's Back sort of like attached to my identity and all it, my whole social structure is like, finally, you know, <laughs> right. Totally. totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, that makes bookmark sense. that talk okay. about me capital. Yeah. That comes back later. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> but so I got to medical school, you know, loved it. I mean, it was freaking hard, but in a weird way, it was like the best years awesome. of my life. Right. It was, okay. You know, I, I met my husband. It mm. was like everything was jiving. It was awesome. Like I met great friends. Um, and it's kind of cool because, I mean, you live on student loans. Like you're not very smart because you like live above your means, whatever. You like drink a lot more than you're supposed to. You but know, you're just <laughs> That's all stuff you're supposed to do when you're young and dumb. So true, true. <laughs> I, so, I, I kind of embraced it. <laughs> yeah, you know, now I have like the student loan payments to pay for right. it. But at the time, you know, all, your whole entire responsibility is school. So it was in a weird way. It was just this like amazing relief, you know, and um, this was, I guess, about 2008 timeframe. Okay. And so it was right around the online business space. So I remember when I was trying to escape medical school, I came across these, you know, online marketers and they're talking about blogging. And at the time, blogging t- seemed to be the big thing. You know, yes. a lot of people were like blog and monetize your blog. And that was the thing. So I started a right. blog for a while. And you were listening to I, Tim Ferriss or sorry, you were reading Tim Ferriss in the, in the four hour <laughs> work. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And just you weren't like, listening yet because you didn't have a podcast yet. We're still in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, and, and when I say the four hour work, I don't necessarily mean Tim Ferriss as an individual. I just mean like that scene the, of yes, people. Yes, yes, you know? that vibe, that um, idea of exactly, you should yeah. you, you shouldn't have a job. You should be screwing around exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and making money. And exactly. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, I probably, you know, I didn't do as well as I wanted to in medical school. We'll put it that way. Um, and it doesn't really matter because like, who do you call the last person in your class? Doctor. You know, that's what they say. So it's not <laughs> as big of a deal that you're right. like at the top of the class. However, I was just feeling, I think I was still feeling doubt. Like, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? You know, I was seeing all these doctors and the change in the healthcare system. And I was just like, this is miserable. Like these people have horrible lives. Like mm. this is not worth it. You not know? as advertised this life. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Understood. Gosh. 
So I was looking for a specialty that I could still have a business brain, you know, and use that business brain in that. So whether that's private practice or being able to have a work-life balance on the side, you know, I was married by this time. I was looking to start a family. And so, you know, long story short, I chose psychiatry, which is kind of a veer moment in and of itself. Uh, yes, because right. You've got the MD, but now you're not going to really do that mostly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure when I imagined to be a doctor, I was never in my wildest dreams thought I would be a shrink of all things. <laughs> um, and much to my parents' dismay, who, you know, I grew up in like, Christian conservative home in Texas, you know, mental health was just not talked about a lot. Like who knows why I even chose it. I honestly still to this day, it was just like one of those random decisions you make and then you just go with it. Um, Mm. now I'm let's bookmark that because it's going to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Okay. Oh gosh. Um, and honestly it probably, so by this time I knew that I was pregnant with our first child and I did want a, a flexible specialty, you know, something that had, even within training, I wasn't going to be working like hundred hour work weeks and right. there was going to be, you know, some level of a family life if that's possible. I mean, medical training is not easy even as a psychiatrist, but right. especially not like in surgery or cardiology or something else. So, um, so I graduated medical school. I had my daughter actually, well, I had my daughter last like month of medical school. She was five weeks old when I graduated medical wow. school. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> ton of things happened. So moved across country, had my daughter, my husband, who's active duty military, he was starting a new job that wow. required some people. Yeah. Um, what service? And a- an officer Army. enlisted. Okay. Officer. Yeah. Uh, Army he was officer. A- Yikes. So you guys got to yeah. move a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was enlisted in the air force for 20 years. So, um, oh, I, yeah, but the officers have to move so much more often. Yeah. Than enlisted yeah. dudes. It's like enlisted guys are like, mm, okay, I can hang out here for three years or make it maybe make it more. And it's, you know, it's a little bit easier to stay below the radar officers. Not so much. Cause if no. you, yeah. I mean, to really get promoted, right. You, right. you, you have to moving. keep moving. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of geographic separation because of that, which of probably course. factors yeah. in everything too. Right. Um, the isolation. So, yeah. That's a ticky. Totally. It's awful. Mm, yeah. Awful. I know. <laughs> but one, one, the thing is though, once you know that it's not you and it's like everybody, mm-hmm. any, you know, I learned that when I, when I started screwing around, um, and not having a job, um, that, you know, just hanging around the house ain't going to do it because I go nuts. <laughs> and I, I, you know, and then I had this doctor, she's a PhD and she, uh, her name's L- Loretta Bruning. She was on my show way early, like uh, when I first started. She talks a lot about how we still have a lot of the wiring in our brains that say we need to be close to the herd. <laughs> and then yeah. when we're not, we feel like we're going to, yeah, that, 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 right. I'm trying to use the, the, the animal metaphor like she does. Um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, the wiring that the say like deer in a herd have, you know, if they, if they go over too far away from the, the flock or the herd. And in that case that like when we are just hanging around in the house and not being around other people, we feel literally like we're going to be eaten like by a lion. there's this little piece of our brain that's saying you're gonna die (laughs) Mm -hmm. you need to go be by people yeah yeah i think that factors into you know like full-blown you know mental illness too like a depression or anxiety situation like you know part of rehabilitation is getting people like 
socialized For basically sure. you, you have know, to be making friends you have to be yeah. in human park not rat right. park human park <laughs> totally yeah okay yeah, so sorry i interrupted I, the story no it's all good um so i started my residency my intern year which is like the hardest year of all medical training i think okay uh with an eight-week-old baby and, and your <laughs> husband is with you or not with you Wait. He was living with me, yes, but, but um, yes, I mean, he was like in a busy. command position, so really wow. busy. Yeah. So, so you, you know, I was working, like, so I never saw him. So I had averaged about six day work weeks. He had averaged about six day work weeks. So mm. the day off that I had off was usually the day off he did not have off, so that our daughter was only in childcare like Monday through Friday, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was definitely a strain to our marriage. It was, I mean, we were across country from our family, so it wasn't like, you didn't have and we your support did, and structure. I, I didn't have my support structure. I mean, probably in a very ironic way, both the biggest stressor as well as my saving grace was my job because right. I was so committed to my job as, you know, my profession as a doctor that I was like, I, I have to finish my training. Like this is what's best for my family. Cause you know, talk about like the me capital, you know, when you invest like four years of your life in medical school and you're in like $160,000 of debt, which is actually less than the average these days, mm, you're yeah. like, I got to, I got to finish my training. Cause there's, you don't have a transferable skill as a doctor. You know, it's not like I could drop out and be a nurse or I could drop out and be like a tech. Like you either finish your medical training and you're a doctor or you're just sitting on this mound of debt you have. <laughs> so. You are, you are literally committed like a pig in breakfast. Literally. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it, I think that all played into it too. Cause I just felt so trapped. I felt like nothing mm. in my life was within my control. You know, here I, um, just, you know, my, my pregnancy itself was a little bit unplanned. And, you know, so here I have this baby that was like not entirely planned here. I, you know, I'm in this profession. It's like not entirely the plan I'm sitting, you know, we were living in DC, which was not exactly where I wanted to be living at the time. And so all of these things outside of my control and I had no friends. I mean, nobody, I mean, the people I worked with were, they are just colleagues, but you don't have that same level of connection. And no one understood that I was a mom. I mean, to have kids that young, you know, I was 26, mm. I guess, which yeah, yeah. isn't so young, but it's young in the kind of career space, I think. Oh, that's young. Yeah. And so most of my, yeah. So most of my friends did, you know, didn't have children or the ones that did have kids, they weren't working. You know, the military wives that I knew definitely didn't understand my life. So I just really felt so disconnected. I mean, Isolated. I was like, is the word totally right? isolated. Right. Yeah. Isolated. Right. You're basically I mean, like, outside of work. You're in your head telling yourself like you're a piece of shit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I d- I've been there. I've been on that page too. I don't know what the page number is, but yeah, we've been living in the same book. Okay. Continue. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I just kept rooming along, you know, through, cause I was like, I just got to make it through my training. And I mean, every day was just this grind. It was like hard to wake up. It was hard to take care of myself, take care of my daughter. And really the most pivotal moment was my husband was going on a six week training assignment and he was going to be like off the grid. So like, I wouldn't even be able to contact him. He's going to, if you're aware, like national training center in Fort Irwin, California, just like pit hole of America, but, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of those in the military. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, so, and again, like I had nobody and I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to pick up my daughter on time from daycare. Cause my hours, usually he was able to pick her up on time and so oh, yada, right. yada. Yikes. It was just so many logistics were happening. And so I had to confront my, you know, my, my boss, my residency program director, like, look like 
I might need to like drop out of my training. I might need to like rearrange my schedule. Like I, I need to take a break. Like, I don't know, but like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I can't do this. And all the while, mind you, like the brewing postpartum depression had really reached ahead. I mean, I was having really disturbing thoughts, um, not of hurting my baby, but definitely of like harm to myself and just like, is life worth living? And all those like ex- existential kind of thoughts. I've been on I that page like, too. You know, how, how did I get here? You know, and you start right. and the biggest resounding question that I just kept feeling is like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Who am I? And this whole like identity crisis of myself just like reached ahead. And my wow. mom came out to visit. She helped me out for a little bit. My mm. program did rearrange my schedule. So I was, you know, thankfully they kept me on track on my, you know, program track, which was nice. So mm. I was able to still take care of my daughter. And um, by this time, like I was seeking my own mental health treatment. And that was incredibly shameful, you know, to not only my kind of childhood upbringing, but I was a professional. Like, you know, we think we're in the field. Like, here I am, a psychiatrist that I shouldn't need my own psychiatrist. Which which doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I I, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if the postpartum wasn't a part of it, like the trauma and stress you face just everyday life as a therapist or someone in the mental health field, I mean, it's a lot. Like, you you need a way to process all of the stuff you're hearing from your patients and clients mm. in a healthy way. So I, I now look back and I mean, it's a huge part of my brand and like taking care of yourself. And that's like so, so important. I think it starts actually with us taking care of ourselves first, yeah. but I didn't know it at the time. You know, I, I, you know, let people like society kind of tells us maybe especially as mom or maybe as women, but I, sh- I shouldn't even ostracize like women, but it, we have this martyr complex, right? That like, we have to just keep sacrificing to the world around us for us to be right. good people. Right. And so I did, I mean, I just like gave it myself to, to my baby, to my work, to my husband. I was just trying to please everybody. And, you know, and then it sort of repeated itself then in subsequent years. So around this time, so I started to feel better and, um, I guess my daughter was coming up on about a year old. And that's when I first started following again, kind of like really actively, like this is when I was subscribing to a podcast. I was purchasing programs. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Cause I don't want to, I was seeing the problem already as a doctor that you can make a lot of money. Sure. You absolutely can make a lot of money, but at a cost, you mm. know, at a cost to your constantly trading your time for money. And, and I didn't know if I wanted to do like medicine for the rest of my life, you know, clinical medicine. And so I was like, how can I, I have all this wealth of knowledge. Like how can I put it into sort of a marketable program or something that I can actually sell online or how can I change the language enough that I'm not, you know, I'm no longer really talking to people specifically with mental illness, but I'm just talking to the masses. And I realized both you know, I'm, I realize this is like a universal problem, this identity crisis that we face, this, this sure. problem of being our authentic selves and like who that person is, mm. because we spend like decades probably of our lives covering up who we are, you know? Mm. And it's, you know, it's funny because I, I look at my daughter now, she's almost five and, um, like that is your real self, you know, yes. like when you're like, a it's a lot closer. Child. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you're a lot like, closer. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I know. It, it's, it's such a check to me. Cause I'm like, one, who was I at five? And two, how can I raise my children to not lose the essence of themselves mm, throughout good question. adolescent yes. and, you know, early adulthood issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's like we all kind of do to an extent, but like how do you prevent that as best as possible? 
Um, Good question. So, <laughs> I'm glad you're thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I guess, you know, I went on a, a little detour there, but coming back, so that's when kind of my online business, I guess, ventures started. And sure. my goodness, I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that existential dread feeling because I went through that too. Yeah. I think that is like, um, I think everybody like goes through it. It's whether or not you face it or not. Right. So I think it takes a mountain of courage to actually deal with it and not like, cause like, I think I, I think we all do this. Like I just learned, <laughs> you know, it's like every day you get a little bit better, but like, uh, last year I'll, I'll do this shortly, quickly. I moved from LA to Vegas. So I'm in Vegas now, mostly to escape California taxes and stuff. Um, <laughs> right. So, but my wife stayed in LA for like two months or so, uh, to finish up her job. Um, so I was staying in Vegas for like two months all by myself. And, um, right away, I went into all the coping mechanisms of drinking too much and watching too much TV and uh, dabbling with like tobacco and all these things yeah. to, you know, sort of like numb out the fact that I'm all alone in a new place. Damn it. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we keep doing it, you know. Um, so I only just learned like, you know, this year that that it, that those things like they're not bad all all by themselves, but the way you medicate with these things, right, are always bad. I mean, it never, ever works. You know, whatever it is that you're trying to make go away, you can't X away. Like, uh, let's say um, you're addicted to gamble, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Gambling, right? Uh, it would be, you can't gamble the pain away, right? If you're on drugs, mm -hmm. you can't shoot up the pain away. You know, if you're addicted to sex, you can't screw the pain away. <laughs> you just have to deal with the pain, right? That, that's what I learned. And uh, it's, it's a big deal, you know. Uh, people need to hear that, you know, successful people, well, you, maybe not me, uh, but successful, pe <laughs> <laughs> successful people go through these things too, you know. Uh, we're not like the Facebook pretty everything's awesome um, version that we see on social media. People, you know, have these feelings and these thoughts and, you know, it's pretty universal. And that's what I wanted to sneak well, in there. Right. For sure. Oh, for sure. And, and I can say a couple of things to that. First of all, I mean, one of my supervisors said early on in my training, you know, Stephanie, everyone is suicidal and it sounds really wild and morbid, but we've all thought about death. Like we yep. all have those low moments where we imagine like the pain to end and, you know, we all, we all imagine suicide, you know, right. and it's, it's not just like pop culture. This is like what we all live and breathe every day, you know, mm -hmm. and how we treat that problem is, you know, a whole other story, but right. I'll go a step further, Jeff, even, you know, you're talking about things that what I consider is very maladaptive coping, right? right? So, right. you know, like smoking, drinking, addiction, those are all pretty accepted from culture that like that's right. bad, you know, quote unquote. But I, I actually deal with, you know, specifically with women, but so, and first of all, women, especially high achieving women. So that I'm talking about like female CEOs, doctors, lawyers, right, right. entrepreneurs, business owners, they are 10 times, um, higher risk of getting a mental illness than any other woman. That makes sense. So I, mean, I think it makes yeah. sense for, 
for probably a lot of reasons, like, you know, but I think it comes down to like the personality type of someone who goes into business for themselves or accomplishes all these goals for themselves. They usually are also very self-critical people. It's what sort of makes you successful, but also kind of can be your demise also, because what I see is, so we talk about maladaptive coping. I see the adaptive coping. I see the positive or what society says is positive quote unquote coping. Okay. Give us some examples of uh, these. So yeah. Like exercise, meditation, (laughs) yoga. No, but okay. For me, for me, I'll tell you my story. I was like obsessed with self-development. Of course. Yes. I'm on on that page too. Yes. Like a hundred, like, I mean, I have read hundreds of self-development books. I have become the perfect student of entrepreneurship. You know, I've spent thousands of dollars on courses and products and stuff that I didn't even need, you know, like stuff that like thought that somehow it would make me better. But like it it was wrong time, wrong place, just wrong product altogether for me. And that is one sort of, I think a positive coping because no one would really see that as like, Oh, Stephanie, you have a problem. You need to like stop buying these courses. But it was, it was, I was totally avoiding the fact that I was still in my medical training and I really hated residency. I mean, residency sucks. Any doctors, maybe if you're listening, like, you know, it just sucks. You're like this peon oppressed position. You're Mm. like lower than a nurse on the totem pole. I mean, you're just, you have, okay, you have all the responsibility, but no control, which is the worst combination of any job. Yeah. No power, but all the responsibility. So like if something goes wrong, it's It's all your fault. fault, That sounds like being like sort of like the beginning of a a military career or actually anytime you're (laughs) enlisted. Yeah. Yeah. Once you make it to middle management, once you get to like, like I was, uh, so I retired as an E7. But by the time you get to E6, which is tech sergeant in the Air Force, yeah, and, then, yeah. and then it translates to master sergeant in the Air Force, they put you into the position of all you do, your mantra is, yes, sir, of course, it's my fault and I'll fix it. Yeah, <laughs> and it, that's the mantra. Support. That is the mantra. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, and you are definitely living the role of the murder because nothing's yeah. your fault, but it's all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> so I, was I lived on that page. That- right. You know, so I wasn't facing that reality. Um, you know, another big one, I will say, I think our culture at large is so obsessed with health, with weight loss, with perfection of the ideal body. And right. that the image. is the image, exactly. And like the aesthetic appeal. And it's mm. it sort of overlaps entrepreneurship because there's so many even business people that preach these different diets and different, you know, quote unquote lifestyle changes. And it's, (laughs) you can get so obsessed with that though, that you're like, wait a second. It's, you know, I mean, one of my online programs, I call it like, it's not about the food, you know, cause when we try to control food, we try to control our body. Like it's not about that. Like any seeking control in our lives, it's, it's about seeking control for sure, but it's not about the thing that you're trying to get control over ever. Interesting. What's it about? It's usually about some pain that they're yes, avoiding. Yes, or- I knew it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I just read this. Actually, I didn't read it. I, I listened to an audio book um, by this doctor in Canada, uh, Garber Mate. And he was mm. talking about addiction. And he was like, the question you should be asking is, why the pain? Mm, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're, you know, it's that, that's what. Uh, fundamentally, you know, he was talking about most addicts have some sort of childhood trauma that wired them yeah. for addiction, essentially. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm really summarizing <laughs> a very long book. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. 
Well, and trauma at large has been vastly misunderstood too. Mm. I mean, just especially a childhood tidbit. version too, because totally, because of all the the brain chemistry going on that that locks in these patterns, like yeah. uh, uh, what is it like something around five to seven, and then again at puberty, where your brain locks in its primary circuits the myelated circuits in your brain. Um, Loretta Bruning talked about that. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) I have smart people on my podcast (laughs) and I shortcut. Yes, but right. So essentially we are, there's like three versions of us, right? There's the, there's the five to seven year old that is, you know, constantly dealing with that time travel. And then the 16 year old that's constantly stuck in high school. And then we're, we're, trying, we're trying to use that software to, uh, live in this, you know, air quotes, grown up world. But right. <laughs> Go well, they on. say like, if you have had a traumatic experience. And so when I say trauma, it's, it's not what you think it is. It, it doesn't have to be this, you know, war related trauma right. or like right. even physical violence. Like I actually see the majority of trauma that I deal with. It's like the emotional trauma, you know, it's the yeah. self, it's the really critical parents that, you know, they were never positive or they were always nitpicking you and you develop these limiting beliefs from a very young age that like, you know, I'm not good enough like that. Right. I think is this resounding theme of our culture that we're not good enough as we are. And so you keep doing these things in your life to feel good enough, but nothing you do on the outside is really going to change the inside. Mm. Like it has to come from the inside out, um, which is a big part of my brand, a big part of the work that I do. And it, it takes a while often, sadly it shouldn't, but it usually does take some kind of a rock bottom moment for people to kind of wake up and realize it is within themselves to change themselves. Let's and hope not. not. Be... <laughs> that's, that's why I made that's this show. That yeah. is, so that was my, the, the impetus of this brand was, um, I want to help people get to a midlife non-crisis. I like that. <laughs> because you're right. I mean, typically everybody says you got to hit rock bottom. I'm like, why? Let's not. <laughs> really? Yeah. Some people, you know, have to, obviously, you know, but let's, let's, let's try to stop them together. <laughs> right. That's kind of like my mission. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I interrupted. You're, you're telling a story. I, I forgot where I was going to start. <laughs> okay. I, I will try it's to. It's re- funny what you say. Well, it's funny you say, you know, I get asked a lot, can you prevent postpartum depression? Can you prevent depression? Can you prevent anxiety? Can you prevent these things? So I talk about prevention and, you know, I have my I don't think you can, health. no. So exactly. So you can't prevent, but you can prepare, right? Right. So, I mean, especially postpartum, because that's like a very timeline, you know, I can prepare when baby comes, this, this, and this, you know, things. But just in terms of you in general, depression, anxiety, any really life-changing event or transitions or big changes. Veers. Yes, veers. Mm-hmm. Veers, exactly. I mean, <laughs> right. those are times when you should wake up and try to prepare because, mm-hmm. so there's a, a rating scale. I think it's the Holmes rate key stress scale. And it's wow. an index you can go to and you put in different life events and they give you a score about your current stress. And the higher the score, the higher likelihood you'll have a medical problem problem, like a medical illness in the next uh, year of your life. Wow. And it's wild. Yeah. It's wild how, I mean, this has been proven in different studies and stuff. So, I mean, obviously some of the biggest stressors are like a death of a, you know, first degree relative or a loved one, Mm. you know, divorce, separation. But what's interesting about that scale is even good things are on there. So like getting married or coming into a lot of money or, um, 
a change in your life that you wanted out of your life or having a baby, which are what culture sees as all good things, but even good things are still still really traumatic. Yeah. It's still change. And it's still, yeah, it's still a fear. And so for me, you know, when I work with moms and my own experience, it was like, we, I think it's our expectation of it. You know, we think having a baby or getting married or all these quote unquote good things or starting a business, they're going to bring us a lot of joy because society has told us like, these are great things in your life and it's a blessing to you and you know, blah, blah, blah. And all this like positive language. And so when you're feeling negative about it, like that's when guilt comes in, right? Cause that's mm-hmm. when you feel like, oh my gosh, why do I not like being a mom? Like, why do I not actually like having this kind of business or why do I not like being a doctor? You know, like that was me too. I was like, wow. here I am. Like, you know, I have a great income potential as a doctor, like more than, you know, 95% of the population. I have a pretty much guaranteed like six figure salary for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And it's fairly, you know, quote unquote, easy work, you know, after going through like hell of training. But, yeah. and for me to be like, wait, maybe this isn't actually what I want to do like full time for the rest of my life. Mm. It's, it's just kind of this awakening moment because you're kind of, you're totally going counter cultural to what everyone around you is saying, what your parents expect of you, what society expects of you, what your friends expect of you, you know, and it's just to continue to like wake up and be like, actually, I want to spend more time in my online business. It's not even making me any money. It doesn't make right. any sense right now. Right. You know, you're definitely like swimming upstream as they say, kind of like against, yeah. right. Um, but even then, yeah, I mean, all changes are a stressor in our lives. And so it's how we deal with that. It's like the, both the expectations around it as well as like the aftermath of it that creates either kind of lifelong damage, you know, like emotional mental health issues or you, um, what's it called? The word is post-traumatic growth. So something can be like post-traumatic stress, you know, which leads to like post-traumatic stress disorder and those kind of symptoms. Or you can look at it as like post-traumatic growth. I like where those that. Things, yeah. 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 Post-traumatic, post-traumatic growth. It's, um, hmm. I like it because it's better than stress, <laughs> but it still has the word trauma in it. Right. Yeah. So, Cause it is, it is. You're yeah, acknowledging, right. You're acknowledging that it was a really awful situation you went through, you know? So now yeah. like, I mean, I'm five years after the fact I've, you know, fully recovered from my postpartum depression. I've really faced a lot of my inner demons with some help from professional treatment as well. And, I now have found a better balance. It's a daily, you know, it's a daily challenge. I think it's not like something, there's no like utopian end and then like life is perfect. You know, like every (laughs) day. That's true. You're right. I've learned that one too. I think uh, (laughs) another guest of mine, um, now I can't remember his name, Eric Zimmer. Uh, he's got a podcast called the one you feed, which is awesome. Everybody should check that out. Um, but he and I had a a really cool discussion about one of the fallacies that we're walking around in our brain with is that like one day it's like this fantasy, like one day Mm -hmm. I'll have had worked enough or I will have made enough money. Um, I will have done X, Y, Z and life will be easy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and that's never yeah, that's all- not that's not true that'll never happen you know even never. like bill gates wakes up and is cranky you know and he'll never <laughs> you, you know because he doesn't have enough like sucrose in his brain you know this is a uh it doesn't your your brain doesn't care how much money you have well it does <laughs> but not in the morning <laughs> yeah and it's not just the money you know we get into like 
um, you know, for me, so my husband's actually separating from the army in, uh, the next year and a half or so. And so a lot of times I can get into like, well, as, as soon as Travis is out of the military or as soon as we get back to Texas or as soon mm, as, right. you know, life will be perfect. Exactly. Or as soon right. as my kids, you know, go to kindergarten or whatever, you know, we get into this, like, as soon as like this future oriented life. And it's, it's funny because I think it's both the thing that drives us, you know, we're planners, we look at the future, we're visionaries, we imagine this like beautiful future. However, what's funny from a neurochemical standpoint, so dopamine is the future oriented hormone. So right, dopamine, right. Yes. you know, it gives us like those seeking desires, like mm-hmm. we're seeking out pleasure. So like when we're hungry and we look at food, that's dopamine or we, right. when we're, um, you know, before like we climax in sexual intercourse, like we're, right. it's dopamine, like driving us forward. Right. But what's funny is dopamine doesn't actually make you feel good. Dopamine just drives you to try to feel good. And right. We, it's that sort of so, like the wanting chemical, right? It's like exactly. uh, the way it's the addiction model. Right, right. It's it's a big part of the uh, addiction circuit, the dopamine circuit, right? It's like the wanting. Right. right. But the is, like Go ahead. Yeah, so but the here and now hormones, which is like the the histamine, the oxytocin, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Those happen when you're like in that moment of, you know, flow in that peaceful moment of, you know, it's like after you climax, after you orgasm, it's Mm. when you're eating like a really good meal. It's Mm. when you're, you know, with your child, like it's when you're hugging someone, you know, it's in those present, like mindful moments. And so it's funny because we, it's like, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice by continuing to plan and live in the future because that's actually never going to make you feel any better. Even from a neurochemical standpoint, it's not actually going to serve you. You know, it's only when we can really embrace like how your life is right here and now, that's when the, you know, the flood of chemicals that are like, you know, the, the quote unquote feel good hormones, that is when we actually can, from a chemical level, feel better. Right. Right. Wow. So you see, you've spent some time thinking about this too. (laughs) That's amazing. I guess it's an occupational hazard because everyone wants to, you know, so I'm a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist. And first of all, people probably don't even understand the difference, which is fine. So I I I had my MD and I went to residency in psychiatry. There's a lot of other fields of mental health that kind of have different things. But a big part of my field is I have to cut through the myth that depression is just a chemical imbalance because it's, it's not, it's been proven time again. It's not. However, it's also a very complicated conversation to have with patients that medication can help, you know, for a period of time. Right. And it's not something you have to be on for life. And, you know, this is sort of for a whole other conversation, but the, the reasons the medication help is for a, like a very downstream kind of neurochemical effect. It's not just because your serotonin's low. So let's give you serotonin. Because anyone who's maybe ever taken antidepressants, it takes several weeks to finally take effect. Right. So why is that? I mean, if it was just the serotonin thing, it would work instantaneously. But it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way because it has to kind of take the secondary tertiary effects within your brain that actually really help kind of rewire some like circuitry for to put it in kind of lay words. Got it. Um, yeah. That stuff's complicated. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Because, you know, um, my wife is actually on a very super low dose of, uh, what is it? The SSRI. And it's just to help her yeah. sleep. She's not even depressed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and. You can take it for sleep. You can take right. it for. I have patients that take, um, they have really bad, like, you know, public speaking, you know, they take it because Hmm. 
um, they have such anxiety and like almost panic, like symptoms before they publicly speak. So they'll take like a low dose medicine for that. Um, yeah. And sleep. That's a big one um, Mm. to help with sleep too. So let's talk a little bit about what you went through and your personal story of postpartum depression. Um, we're getting close to wrapping up. You know, you should be on my show again. This is awesome. We're, we're having yeah. a good time. <laughs> but I, I think that is probably, I mean, I'm looking at your, your one sheet now and I'm like, mm, let's see, which one of these stories do I really want to hear? So we know everything that went around how you got to your postpartum depression, but I think your postpartum depression is a big, huge part of your story. So let's just get a little yeah. bit more granular before we wrap up and see what you learned and see if we can tease out some things that for the audience, you know, that some takeaways. Yeah, sure. So like I said, so I started my intern year with an eight week old and, you know, we put my child, um, she was in daycare. It was like the best extended hours for the cheapest rate we could find in DC because we're basically living one salary in DC. Um, so there was obviously there was a ton of guilt, just like being a working mom and, you know, not being there for my daughter. Cause I was working like 60, 70 hours a week. My husband wow. was working long hours. I, you know, I literally like, I would drop her off at probably six in the morning. I wouldn't see her again till like six 30 or seven at night. And then it was like enough time to like nurse her bath time, put her to sleep. And it was, I knew it was just like a means to an end, you know? And so I just kept, I just kept doing it. I just kept like putting on the pretty face, you know, like kept repeating the cycle until, you know, like I had mentioned, um, I guess before we derailed, my husband was going on a training assignment and I don't know what it was about like that reality to me, but it all just like hit me. Like I, I can't do this. Like, and to be very honest, it wasn't like, mm, I don't want to throw my husband under the bus, but it wasn't like he was that much of a like emotional stability for me in that moment. Cause like I said, he was working a lot of hours, but I think from just, he was the only one there for me though. You know, I mean, he was the one I came home to, like he was the only one else that was like helping me wake up in the, you know, middle of the night with my daughter. And, you know, he was someone that I counted on. I mean, he's still to this day, like my best friend, my love, my world, but it, I think sometimes one person is just not enough. Totally. Well, it definitely wasn't. And Mm. I think it was just, and he's absent, you know, so, you know, you need more hits of all those brain chemicals. (laughs) So you got to get it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, in terms of specific symptoms, I just remember I am normally like a incredibly like bubbly, high energy, really right. effervescent person. Like I that is tell. a strength of mine. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I felt so slowed down. Right. I mean, like my brain, I just, I, I felt was on like low power mode. Like, mm. you know, like the, uh, Me like a vacuum, caffe- like not caffeine. working. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I like nothing would shake it though. You know, like I would drink more caffeine or I would try to get better sleep, like nothing. And I Mm. just felt, um, I was making careless mistakes at work, you know, thank God, like nothing that harmed a patient, but like I would forget to put in like to order like a patient's labs or, which is something like I'm very detail oriented. Like that was really not like me as a person. Um, you know, I had really, so I'm actually an extrovert by nature and a lot of entrepreneurs are introvert, but I'm pretty extroverted. And I was totally isolating myself. So even when friends or family did want to come visit me, I just like wanted to lay in bed. Like I just didn't, mm. and and not in a way like, so I think pop culture makes us believe that like depression is this like haggard, like just cries and lays in bed all day. And like, that's so far from the truth. Like right. I was super high functioning. I mean, I was a doctor, I was working all my hours. Like I still was making all of my shifts at the hospital. I was taking overnight call. I was taking care of my daughter. I mean, I was never 
neglecting her or, you know, but I was just not there. You I mean, I was have, just not there. Yeah. And my experience, I went through very much similar depression type thing, obviously not postpartum, but when I was in the military, I went through some stuff way back when, when I was stationed in Hawaii of all places. But wow, I'm yeah. very much like you where, you know, my natural state on caffeine or post caffeine <laughs> is very much, you know, bubbly and, you know, social butterfly and that guy that's just a little bit too enthusiastic. You know, it's like, take it down <laughs> a notch, buddy. You know, <laughs> right. Got that. Right. Yeah. Um, so like my experience was very much what you're talking about. It's like um, it felt like like life, it was like you're, you're kind of like having to push through goo, right? It, yeah. Yeah. It's I just felt like, like I was in quicksand. Yeah. I, I right. Really. Actually, the analogy I give, and I talk about this in my book, I felt like I was treading water. Like, you right. know how hard it is to tread water in right. the middle of the ocean? Like that was my life. I felt like for like nine months after my daughter was born. Wow. Um, and I, I just, honestly, I just didn't think anything of it. You know, I thought, okay, having babies hard. Like, you know, it's something I've never been through before. And and this is where it gets really complicated just in my clinical practice. Like what's a normal, like, you know, quote unquote normal for a new mom and what's not normal, which is mm-hmm. kind of a whole other discussion. But, right. you know, I think it just even in general depression terms, like when you're not acting yourself, that should be a red flag, mm-hmm. you know, but that requires that you actually know who you are to begin with. Right. Um, which I think, like I said, I was kind of having an identity crisis on top of it all. So I was like, maybe this is the real me. Like maybe I was just putting on a front before. And, Mm. you know, I think it actually took some people around me, you know, my mom being one. So I hadn't seen my family a lot because we had moved across country and she hadn't seen me really since my baby was like two or three months old. And she came to help out when Kate, my daughter was about eight months. And she told me that I looked really bad. Yeah. And (laughs) And, that helps though, because you needed help. I did. It was, it was validating to me actually to hear. Um, so we can go, I just want to say a little bit, cause I heard someone recently on your show get into like labels of stuff. And it is really fascinating because I talk to my patients and clients and my online audience. And I always ask them like, do you like, do you like being labeled with postpartum depression or having depression or having anxiety? And I actually would think that most people wouldn't like to be labeled because we would think that that's stigmatizing or that's victimizing, but I hear the exact opposite from women. I hear that having a label gives them validation for their suffering. Right. And I know everyone's different and everyone's going to feel differently about the particular language of like having a mental illness. But I think maybe specifically postpartum depression, because it is something that like both affects you and your baby. And it is like just a really misunderstood diagnosis. But I hear women like they, they like to know that they can give their suffering a title, you know, that it's not just like I'm having a bad day or going through a hard time. It's actually, no, this is a clinical disorder that can be treated. And, you know, we have treatments like whether that's pharmaceutical in nature or just therapeutic treatments, like there's a solution to the problem that that tends to be really validating. And it actually was too. I think a part of it is you're getting awareness that it's not because when you're, when you're in it and you don't have the label, the title, the external validation, then you just think, come on, come on. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're you're putting it all on you and your, and your inner voice is saying, wow, I'm a piece of shit. (laughs) So many people have it so much easier than me. I need to stop whining. And you get right. into this m- martyr spiral kind of thing. Yeah. 
I think yeah, and that's what I that's what I felt. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. why am I such a loser? You're not, yeah. I need to I need to buck up, you know, and yeah. and uh, and, not- and I don't want to I don't want to discount how difficult it is to actually get treatment either. So I mean, me. So I, as I mentioned before, I was in a perinatal mental health track. So the patients I was seeing on a regular basis were patients just like me. I mean, they were pregnant, postpartum patients having these same kind of mood and anxiety disorders, which was also validating for me that I was kind of seeing this and like seeing that it was helping other people. And who knows, maybe on an unconscious level that kind of helped me get treatment too. But when I finally got validation for my mom, and then I subsequently told my husband too, like, Hey, I think I need help. And he agreed with me. He was like, I, I think you do too. That was so freeing. And that was probably the first step to, okay, what do I do now? You know, like now I've told some people I don't feel good and it took, I'll just be honest with listeners. I mean, I called the psychiatrist's office probably four or five times and I would like hang up because I was like, so, I mean, it takes a lot to actually not only talk to someone, make an appointment, but to go in, fill out the paperwork and make it actually back to sit in an office with someone who's then going to ask you a ton of intrusive questions. Like, so I know women that make it all the way into my clinic to see me, they are warriors. I mean, men or women, like to actually go all the way to like see someone, whether that's just a therapist or even just a life coach or some professional, you've probably already tried to solve it on your own a million times over and like finally reached a point where like, you know, you can't do it on your own. So I give so much encouragement and validation for just that alone. Like, you just know, getting into you the door. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that is so yeah. huge that, you know, I think it's sometimes easy for maybe you listening to be like, Oh, well you were in the field. Like obviously you knew the right people, blah, blah, blah. Like I was active duty. We didn't have good benefits. Like it was expensive. It's not cheap to get right. these kind of treatments either. Right. So there's a ton of barrier too. Cause you're like, am I even worth spending this kind of money on? And you get into that whole conversation and of course your brain is already in this negative mind space. And then it's just, it's awful. Like yeah. it's already hard to make regular decisions and then to make these decisions that are actually for your higher good. It's, it's just incredibly challenging. So I, if you are going through something like that, like, you know, I do not take it lightly and I, you know, it does, I'm sad when I hear like horror stories of like people, you know, just having really bad experiences with mental health treatment. Cause there are, I mean, there are, I'll be honest. I mean, there are some bad providers out there. It's not always mm. perfect. Right. Even once you do seek and get help. But I think that awareness is really freeing in and of itself to just know, like I am suffering from something and it, it you know, whether you want to have the label or not, like you can identify it as suffering or as trauma, whatever. And there's a solution. Like there's a solution that you can get better and grow past it. Amen. Thank goodness. <laughs> wow. Wow. This has been a blast. I mean, we're, we're right at that hour mark, so you've got to go. But uh, tell us one more time um, what's going on or how people best can get touch in touch with you at notthetypicalmom.com. That rhymes. <laughs> it does rhyme. Um, yeah, I got lots of goodies on my website. I mean, not the typical mom.com. If you want, I have a special gift for you listeners of the show. If you actually email me directly. So my email is Stephanie at not the typical mom.com. And that's Stephanie, like Gwen Stefani. And you put in the subject line, either vroom, vroom beer or VVV or something. Um, I will gift you a free call to chat with me. Wow. If you want some direction. That's a big um, deal. 
to find your real self or you just kind of want to chat with me more about these same issues, like I'm happy to jump on a call with you because I I don't want anyone else to kind of face the same confusion and struggles that I went through. So that's kind of my mission. Email right now, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah. I want my free one. <laughs> we'll record it. We'll make it yeah. show number two. That'll be that would be <laughs> awesome. It'll be like a like a mini shrink session. That'd be awesome. A, a mini shrink session on a podcast. Shrink. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank a lot, you. A lot of my episodes turn out that way, I guess. Yeah. yeah a lot of them do. You know, uh, probably a lot less laughing in the in the actual chat, I would imagine. You never know. You never know. You're, With you, the same that's side true. of the coin, right? That's true. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I will thank talk you. to you again soon. This has been a blast. And uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer.